welcome to the Vancouver Tech Podcast. This is episode 87. I'm your host, Drew Ogrizik. Samantha Ming from the Events Podcast. Tell us what's happening this week. Hey, Drew. We have a bunch of tech events this week. On Monday, there is a presentation on startup growth. Learn how understanding your users and their actions can help you build a fast-growing startup. This is at 5.30 at Launch Academy. Also on Monday, Hackerness is back. This is a fun event to connect and meet with people in the local tech community. It's at 8 p.m. at Free Geek Vancouver. Skipping to Wednesday, React Native is having their hack night, so bring your laptop and start coding. This is at 6 p.m. at Bench Accounting. But if you're interested in programming in general, you can attend Techstarters Code Night. Meet other programmers of all levels to chat and work on your projects. There will also be mentors there for you to ask questions and get debugging help. This is at 6 p.m. at Lighthouse Labs. Finally, on Thursday, we have an intro to deep learning with Fast AI. This is part of their seven-week course, and this is their second class. There will be a coding session, so bring your laptop if you're interested in participating. This is at 6 p.m. at Boeing Vancouver Labs. Also on Thursday, Laravel is having their August meetup. There will be presentations and lightning talks on all things related to Laravel, so don't miss it. It's at Invoke and begins at 6.15. And that's this week's top events you should check out. And we're here with Shannon Salter, chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So actually, before I'd met you, I'd never even heard of the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. So the Civil Resolution Tribunal is Canada's first online tribunal. And it's actually the first one we know about in the world, although there's definitely others in the pipeline that are are following the trail that we've blazed. So the idea is that instead of going to court or hiring a lawyer, if you have a strata property dispute or a small claims dispute, that we bring the justice system to you and you decide when and where and how to resolve your dispute uh, using technology wherever possible. That's very cool. So you said it's uh, Canada's and maybe the world's first online tribunal. Uh, is a tribunal a normal arrangement for dispute resolution? Tribunals are uh, similar to courts in some ways and then different in other ways. But people uh, often don't think about tribunals being part of the justice system. But in British Columbia, we've got about 27 of them. And they resolve all kinds of different disputes, you know, workplace injuries, human rights disputes, residential tenancy issues. And they're a way to provide pretty accessible and flexible, affordable uh, dispute resolution services to the public. And they are still part of our justice system, though. So if you don't like the decision you get from a tribunal, you can always judicially review that. So that means you can go to court and have the court review the decision. So it's a little different from uh, actually going to court then, and you have a tribunal. I suppose that means three people that are going to decide. I think that's where the original word came from. You're right. These days, maybe due to budget cuts, most tribunals sit in panels of one, although there are some tribunals that are three, sometimes even five member tribunals. So uh, our tribunal, it's one decision maker. Uh, Sometimes in extraordinary circumstances, we can have three though, but we haven't had to do that yet. Okay, very cool. So does that mean that uh, this online tribunal, is there actually human interaction? There is. So something that surprises people is that it's actually a pretty human-driven process. Really, our goal is to recognize that people come with a context. They may live outside of an urban area. They have a set of abilities and skills and sometimes challenges too. And so we want to bring the justice system to them and build it around them and one of the ways to do that is to use technology to connect people with different human experts. 
So we use technology to connect people with mediators and then tribunal members like me uh, to help give them choices about resolving their dispute. But it's very much a human-driven process in many ways. So one question that comes to mind would be uh, the barrier for entry. Now, I would imagine that a lot of people don't even bother going through the paperwork offline um, that it would require to maybe find out about a tribunal or just find out about the resources available uh, when they're seeking help or when they would uh, potentially require legal help. But does this uh, online tribunal, does that actually help that or does it uh, provide another barrier for entry? Um, And is there any research into that? Yeah, it's interesting. We've done some research in terms of internet use in BC. And so what we found is that 92% of people in BC use the internet every day for all kinds of stuff. So 80% of us do online banking. We're really good with Googling things, buying things, not surprisingly. And 69% of people over 74 in BC are also online every day. So that digital divide seems to be closing. You're right that people sometimes don't know where to go to resolve their dispute. One of the benefits of being online, though, is that if somebody Googles strata problem BC, they're bound to find our page in a hurry. And before somebody is led into that process where they have a mediator and then ultimately an adjudicator if they can't resolve their dispute, before all of that, we want to give them free upfront legal information. So we do that using expert systems, and uh, that's free to use. So we want to give people more information about their dispute and some self-help tools before they even start a claim. So you mentioned expert systems. What's an expert system? Well, an expert system I've discovered is <laughs> is really just a, a more tech way of saying an interactive questionnaire. So it comes from research, particularly in the legal field, that shows that it's next to useless to give somebody a whole pile of general information about a legal subject. So if I give you 20 pages about contract law, that's not really going to get you that much further ahead in terms of contesting your cell phone bill, for example, if you think that it's unfair. But if I ask you questions like, what's your problem? Um, Well, I've got a cell phone bill and I don't think it's right. Okay, what have you tried to do so far to resolve that problem? If I ask you a series of questions, then it gives me enough information that I can give you plain language bits of tailored legal information and then really tailored tools like template letters you can use to resolve it yourself. But it requires that degree of engagement. So it's really a very basic form of artificial intelligence. It's a a massively vascularized mind map um, that presents as questions and answers for the user. That I guess would drill down into the information that would be required for whichever buckets you're sort of trying to allot for. Um, It'd be interesting to see if there's a chart of what uh, what problems are addressed with the the expert system and what ones might not be uh, and who they'd be intended for. Um, I have a question, I guess, regarding who the end user, who's the main end user, or are there some different uh, sort of user profiles for the online resolution? Yeah, yeah, no, and as an access to justice project that is part of the public justice system, our end user has to be everybody. We can't uh, pick our market segment like a startup could, Um, and that has a lot of responsibility that comes with it. So that's why we've built really strong relationships with community advocates, and we always start our testing with community advocates because we want to make sure that Whatever it is we're designing is co-designed with people with barriers to accessing justice. So that might look like people with uh, physical or mental disabilities, people with um, language barriers or other issues accessing the justice system. So our our user base is everybody. It has to work for everybody. So we've that's an interesting thing to say um, and an interesting sort of uh, stipulation to have. 
why does a tool uh, belonging to the justice system have to be for everybody? Well, because I think the risk in making it only accessible for people who are tech savvy or who have a particular literacy level is that you disenfranchise people. So in your efforts to increase access to justice, you actually disenfranchise more people from the system. Um, the traditional legal system is hard to access for a lot of folks. It's expensive, it's complicated, it uses a lot of Latin still, um, and it's not really designed with the, the user at its center. So we really embrace this idea of doing something completely different. And if you start with uh, testing and designing everything in the process with people with barriers first, and then with the public generally, it will it will absolutely work for lawyers. It will work for other uh, actors in the justice system. But you have to really focus on um, people who have barriers first. I might imagine that um, a system designed for uh, resolving a strata issue might uh, have an end user who is somebody belonging to a strata. Um, and there might be a, a slight difference between, or maybe a huge difference, between somebody uh, looking for that type of information um, and that type of resolution. And on the other hand, somebody, um, I don't know if this would even be a, a potential customer, uh, but somebody uh, arguing that a youth program uh, in BC was, uh, had age discrimination because it only allowed up to age 30, and this person's 31 and trying to gain access to this program, for example. Um, and they might be uh, very different end users. So how do you design a system that sort of uh, allots for all of these different people, but yet is still a unified system? That's a great question. And you're right that uh, what we've discovered is that strata owners, we know as a demographic, tend to be somewhat wealthier than the average member of the public. They tend to be somewhat better educated and, and well-resourced. Um, but our thinking is that if you design everything at a grade six reading level, you make everything as simple as possible, then you don't need to worry so much about these different uh, sort of levels of resources in our society. Uh, you make everything as simple as possible. You offer as much flexibility in terms of communication channels as, as possible. And then you can be, um, as I, I keep saying, flexible enough to accommodate the wide array of circumstances people have. So, you know, try and make the baseline really easy to use. But we also know some people, for some people, even that baseline might be too difficult. So that's one of the reasons we offer free interpretation services in over 200 languages. We have a fee waiver for low-income people. Um, and we we also offer the choice of mail and telephone-based services for people who just aren't comfortable with technology. So I think it, it's about the twin ideas of simplicity in design and flexibility in execution. So there truly are options there. Um, I mean, you said telephone, you said mail uh, options as well. And uh, so I guess going back to the uh, the online resolution tool, um, how long has this been around? How long has it been a service? Uh, can I use it? And why didn't I know about it until I just found out about it? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think unless you have a strata property issue or a small claims issue, there may not be a good reason why you would have heard about the CRT yet. Uh, although we are, uh, we're happy to talk about it to anyone who will listen, as you now know, Drew, because <laughs> you've now heard me talk about it twice. But um, uh, so how to go about using it? Well, it's really easy. You just go to civilresolutionbc.ca and you can find more information. You can use what we call the Solution Explorer. So that's the expert system I was talking about. There's one for strata and one for small claims. 
You don't have to have a case. It doesn't collect any personal information. You can just go and poke around and explore and get some more information about your dispute. May well be that you'll be able to resolve it yourself without having to go to a tribunal like ours or the court at all. Um, we've been operating for, we've been accepting strata property disputes for just over a year now, and we started to accept small claims disputes 5,000 and under on June 1st. Oh, okay. So you started out with a sort of subset uh, of what you were offering, and now from just last month, I guess. Uh, how has that been? Have there been any cases, pro- are they called cases, uh, yes. processed? Yeah, so we call them disputes. Um, but you're right, they're, they're essentially cases. And we've had over almost 600 small claims disputes uh, brought in the last seven weeks. So by context, by way of context, in the entire year that we've been accepting strata disputes, uh, we've only had 500 of those. So many more, and we knew that, that there'd be many more small claims. But part of the um, the goal was to begin operating incrementally. So you start with one area, you refine your processes, you reiterate, you retest, and then uh, you accept more responsibility and, and you get better over time. But our goal is to make the organization as agile and transparent as possible. So we have weekly change meetings where we review public feedback through our website. We collect all kinds of feedback in the expert system. Um, sometimes it's an email from a member of a public, sometimes it's a suggestion from a staff member, and we review and triage all of that every week. So it keeps us pretty nimble. So if, if I see an email from a member of a pub, of the public who's confused about something on our website, I just go into the website and I change the content right away. Um, that sounds pretty common sense, but that's not typically the way that justice institutions are able to operate. Very interesting. So I had an experience um, a few years back that uh, for me, it was great. Uh, I, it was pretty exciting. Uh, I got to go to small claims court, and <laughs> it was a, um, a, a rent deposit uh, dispute that I had with a former landlord. And um, I thought it was really neat that I got to go into court and kind of argue my case. I wasn't sure what to say. Do I say your honor um, or your, your holiness or something? <laughs> so, yeah, I think I slipped up a couple of times, but uh, I tried to be a, as polite and sort of what I'd seen on TV as possible. <laughs> and um, anyway, it ended up being quite a good experience. Uh, and, and that was neat. But would that be the type of thing that I might uh, see online as well? Yeah. So that particular kind of dispute, rent deposits still need to go to the provincial court. But a wide range of other small claims disputes now come to us if they're $5,000 or below. So things like debt, somebody didn't pay you according to an agreement a used car, an appliance that doesn't work, used cars a as well. payday loan. Yeah, anything to do with debts, contract, uh, low-level personal injuries, uh, those kinds of things can come to the CRT. So I'm glad you had a really good experience in court. A lot of people, though, find court to be pretty intimidating mm-hmm. and sometimes very difficult to even physically access if they have to take time off work or arrange childcare, um, and if they live in a part of the province that doesn't have easy access to a court. That's very true. I was um, I was fortunate to be uh, two blocks away from the courthouse, and um, it was I think it was just perfect timing. I think it was at five thirty right after work. Um, my father had told me a story I think a long time ago that it always stuck with me, and um, that was about disputing a parking ticket. And he said something like, "You know, son, you don't really have to be right, but you have to be entertaining." If you go in and you, you show something that uh, brightens the judge's day, you have a, a reasonable argument that could be true, um, and he might want to see you or she might want to see you back there again. 
then uh, you'll probably win. <laughs> that is a very interesting take on our justice system. I can tell you those are not our guiding principles when we make decisions at the CRT, but um, I, I'm sure it doesn't hurt to be entertaining generally, but uh, we, do, we do try and make decisions on the merits. I'm sure that it's true that um, the legal system is, is looking at you know, the merits uh, as well. But yeah. oftentimes, if the, uh, if the police officer who wrote the ticket doesn't show up, and you show up to dispute something, then it looks pretty good already. And uh, I think if you have a reasonable uh, excuse or you have a sort of a reasonable reason for why it happened or why it could be believable that you weren't in the wrong, then it's just a parking ticket. I I think you're right, though, that showing up is half the battle and probably not just in court or tribunal applications. I think that's a general life rule, probably. Absolutely. Um, and of course, the danger in the context of a small claim, if you don't show up as the respondent, is that you can have a default order made against you. And that means that you can't participate anymore in the process and you don't get to tell your side of the story and you will have to live with whatever default order that the court or tribunal creates. So definitely showing up is pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, why don't we um, talk a little bit uh, about you, actually, about your background and then eventually how you uh, got involved with the Civil Resolution Tribunal? Sure. So I am a lawyer by training. And uh, then after practicing in litigation for a few years in Vancouver, I decided to move to Toronto and, and do a master's degree for a year, had my older daughter while I was there. That's and- an interesting choice. So uh, what, would, <laughs> what would the motivation be to pursue a master's? I think I needed a bit of a break from private practice, to be honest. I needed uh, some perspective. Uh, the part about private practice I really enjoyed was the pro bono work. And I made that as big a part of my practice as I could. And my law firm was very accommodating. But I realized over time that 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 was the part I really did enjoy. And so I was lucky enough to be able to go and and do this master's degree and study access to justice issues as well as constitutional issues. And I thought, oh, you know, have a baby at the same time. No big deal. (laughs) Would not recommend it to your listeners if anybody's contemplating that course of action. Uh, We we got through it. But really, by the by the skin of our teeth, my husband was also doing a master's degree. And when I came back, um, I think I had had enough sort of distance and perspective to, to recognize that I really wanted to embrace that access to justice part of practicing. Um, and that public service part. And so I applied for and was appointed uh, vice chair of the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, which was a, an incredible experience because every day you're hearing from injured workers and um, you're getting to talk with people, uh, really listen to their stories and write decisions uh, based on the, the legal merits. So it was really fulfilling work. And so it was really through administrative law that I ended up being appointed to this position. So when the chance came to apply, it was about building this new part of the justice system from the ground up, taking what I knew about administrative law and access to justice issues and uh, being able to benefit from this blank slate. So uh, I, it's really the best job I've ever had. And I've been able to uh, build an incredible team of really devoted interdisciplinary people uh, who are just so committed to this project. And yeah, it's pretty exciting. So you said access to justice uh, a couple of times, and I, I guess it is a pretty self-explanatory uh, sort of phrase, but can you tell us a little bit more about what that really means? Sure. So um, access to justice means different things to different people, I think. For some people, it means that everybody should have the, the right to a lawyer whenever they have a legal problem. Uh, for other people, it means that we need to 
really reimagine the way that our justice system operates. And that's just two of many, many conceptions of what access to justice can look like. But it, it does boil down to the idea that, for me anyway, that it's not very meaningful to have a bundle of legal rights unless you have the means to enforce them. And so to the extent that legal processes create barriers for everyday people to be able to enforce their legal rights, uh, to me, that's the crux of the access to justice problem we have. Um, it's not just a problem in BC, of course. It's a problem all over Canada and really everywhere I travel around the world. But uh, to me, what it requires is something more fundamental than, well, we just need more lawyers. That's certainly part of the problem in different areas. But what I think we really need is a fundamental shift and reimagining of our justice system. We need to take user design principles, these principles that are so accepted in, so in tech development and other parts of the, of the world, uh, and in here, but just in other sectors, and apply them to the justice system, apply that thinking. So that's what we're trying to model. So is that um, is that a sort of realistic goal? Because I, I think oftentimes when, uh, personally, when I think of things that I, I want to set out to do, um, if I think of anything involving government or law, uh, particularly change, I think, wow, this is really going to be a lot of work. How am I going to do this? Um, maybe I'll just go do something in, uh, in the <laughs> private sector. I would be lying if I said I hadn't had exactly those thoughts at times over the last three years that I've been in this role. But what's kept me going is just this incredibly committed uh, team we have, and we keep each other going. And, and frankly, we've built, too, a pretty wide range of support from different sectors. I think it's fair to say when this project was first announced, there was a fair degree of op opposition or skepticism. But we've really worked with a lot of different stakeholders to uh, come to a place of consensus. And I think everyone does agree that something pretty fundamental needs to change. The, the justice system is broken and uh, it's going to take some pretty imaginative big thinking uh, rather than the incremental tiny steps we've taken in the past to change it. So, of course, you know, we're not going to change the entire justice system overnight. What I'm hoping to do with the CRT is to model a way that it could look um, to prove the case that you can reorient the justice system towards the needs of people and that that can work, that it can provide a, a satisfying, meaningful experience for people. It can also lead to fair, uh, coherent, reasonable decisions, and it can be better really for the justice system, but also really better for, for the public. So uh, it won't change overnight, but I think uh, creating a, I feel a, a great responsibility to make sure that this model can be proved that uh, improving the model and publishing our statistics, our data, our analytics in demonstrating this commitment to continuous improvement, that we can create a bit of a template maybe for other jurisdictions or other areas of our, of our justice system, even here in BC. So you gave a really great talk uh, last month, I think it was, at the Legal Hackers Meetup. And um, I'll put a link down below that was actually recorded. Uh, and you, you went over sort of the development uh, and feedback cycle um, for the development process and the feedback cycle for the CRT. Uh, and I was really impressed by that because I see a lot of people um, coming from the tech sector that are just not really doing it right at all. And it seems like, you know, I was, I was kind of expecting, oh, okay, it'll be a bunch of lawyers here. What do they know about tech? Um, but I was really impressed at, uh, at just how well organized it seemed to be. Um, and it didn't seem like just some large, slow-moving government entity with a lot of paperwork. 
um, I, I don't know if you were just good at hiding that <laughs> <laughs> and showing the good things, but that was really excellent. Um, I'd like to ask a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you may have learned over the past uh, three years um, with this project. Uh, on the one hand, dealing with um, bureaucracy and, and changes and, you know, getting people on board both internally and externally. And then on the other hand, um, what some of those things might be that are broken in the legal system uh, and how uh, or what a good user experience looks like for the people that need to use it um, and, and how we might apply that to uh, other areas. Yeah, and we we learn through trial and error. Sorry, no pun intended. <laughs> okay, maybe the pun. Was I'm pretty sure it was intended. <laughs> Still a bad pun. Anyway, we we did learn by doing though. So there wasn't really a model to follow, and so we knew we wanted to use agile development. Uh, we work with a fantastic team in the Ministry of Justice. Um, some really forward thinking people there. It's quite an incubator within the Ministry of Justice of of new ideas and approaches. And so, um, you know, we knew we wanted to incorporate user testing. We knew we wanted to build this around the public, but we learned a lot about uh, wrong assumptions along the way as well. So one of the things that we learned, I think, is that when you get a group of tech people and lawyers in a room together and start speculating about how people will behave in a particular situation, you're nearly always wrong because maybe, and this is a broad generalization, but what tech people and lawyers often have in common is a linear approach to problem solving, sometimes. Um, that's not to say they can't be creative in other contexts, but people with problems, we've discovered through user testing, tend to rush in. They're very focused on that problem. Uh, they're not always linear thinkers, though, so they'll they'll rush in uh, and they just will keep on clicking through to whatever they consider to be the first useful bit of information. Um, so the extent that you design technology that fits your way of thinking, but not the, the thinking of the user is, is going to be disastrous. So there are all kinds of features where thanks to user testing, we killed them pretty fast and uh, got on with it. But the good thing about it is it really keeps your ego in check. And, uh, you know, lawyers like me sometimes <laughs> need checks on, on that. So um, it's good. It keeps you really humble because you realize that you always have to keep coming back, that you can't um, extrapolate from your own experience that you really have to stay really connected to the, the people who you're designing for. So what's next for the CRT? Well, what's next is getting good at what we're doing, um, which isn't to say that, that we're not. It's that we recognize that we're new and there's a lot of room for improvement. One of the exciting things we're doing is collecting both a lot of quantitative data. How long does it take to resolve a dispute? Uh, what uh, when do disputes resolve? Do certain kinds of disputes resolve faster than others? And using that data to design more tailored processes. So if we know a debt claim almost never resolves through mediation, then maybe we don't spend a whole lot of time there. Maybe we escalate it to an adjudicator right away. But we're also collecting qualitative data, which I think is really exciting and pretty novel in the justice system. So we survey people who have gone through the CRT process. We don't ask them if they agree with the outcome. That's a question for, for the court on appeal. But we do ask some questions like, did you feel like you're treated with respect by CRT staff and members? Uh, did you understand what was being asked of you? Did you feel heard? Uh, did you, uh, how did you find the technology to use? And we're going to be measuring ourselves against how people feel about the process too, uh, not just how quickly or inexpensively they move through it. So is there enough data yet to declare or predict? success? Uh, I think it's pretty early days. So we, well, let me start by saying, I think we are successful. If you define success as uh, 
constantly improving your processes, checking back, uh, giving people an easy to use way to resolve their dispute that respects them throughout the process, I think we are absolutely successful. Is there room for improvement? Yes. Uh, we want to get faster at what we do. We want to get more efficient at it. Uh, we are ironing out wrinkles almost every day. So our whole team has, a, I think I mentioned these change meetings we have every week. That's our way of being really agile about improvements. And uh, those improvements are happening on a, you know, at a head spinning speed. It's been a lot for our staff to adapt to. Uh, in many ways, it's kind of like being part of a startup because uh, everybody's, everything's changing all of the time and everybody has to be really flexible. And our staff has really risen to the occasion there. So how many, uh, how many people are on board of this startup? Well, <laughs> we started with me and my mobile phone and my laptop in my home office about a couple of years ago. And now we've got uh, over 20 st- full-time staff. We also have 19 uh, tribunal members. Three of them are full-time. I'm one of them. And then we have 16 part-time tribunal members around the province. So uh, we're growing and we're, we're hiring new staff, you know, every couple of months. Uh, so despite that, though, we're still pretty lean given the number of disputes that we anticipate we'll be resolving every year. I think this coming year we'll resolve about 5,000 small claims disputes. Um, but we also have a remote workplace. So we're trying to have uh, very modern strategies for our work, our workforce. And um, that means our footprint is very low. Our overhead cost is very low. Almost all of our budget goes to staff salaries. And we've been able to really punch above our weight in terms of attracting talent because we offer this flexibility. People can work from home. They can work remotely. They can um, be part of something that's growing and changing and, and help build it, which turns out is pretty exciting and is, has uh, helped us recruit a lot of really great people. So what sort of people uh, join this team? Are they mostly uh, lawyers? Some of them are lawyers. Some of them are mediators. Uh, some of them are um, tech folks, uh, really coming from, some are strata experts, really coming from all different uh, areas. And we find that that's also really strengthened the team as well, uh, because it's brought different perspectives. Uh, one of the surprising things to me early on is that for a lawyer, it may be that clear to you that you have to go through five different steps to accomplish something. Um Sometimes members of the technology team will say, well, why can't you just go from point A to point B? Why do you have to go through those five steps? And it causes you to have to really think about what is it the law really requires and what is it uh, that we're just doing because we've always done it that way. So that interdisciplinary team really brings a lot of critical thought and reflection and allows us to do the business transformation work that goes hand in hand with that technology development. I say it all the time, but what we really wanted to avoid was just paving the cow path, just doing by email that which courts and tribunals now do by paper. That's not really transformative. Instead, we really wanted to critically examine every single step. How can we leverage technology to make the experience better? So does that also come with uh, sort of a lot of walls to try and break through if you are trying to change the way that a, a system works? I think it does require you to challenge conventional wisdom a lot. The justice system generally suffers from a data paucity issue. There's just not that much data. What data there is, is hard to extract or interpret. And that really compromises our ability to make evidence-based decisions about the justice system, which is kind of surprising given how important it is to people's lives. So so it is a challenge, but I think we meet that challenge by making evidence-based decisions ourselves. And where we can't, don't have evidence, 
uh, then we do A-B testing to try and gather that evidence to support what it is we're doing. So is it possible for, say, someone like me, uh, a non-lawyer, who uh, might be quite interested in some particular laws or uh, a part of a system where I see some change could happen or I think should happen and I want to champion that cause, uh, is it A, is it possible? B, what sort of steps might I take? Who would I go to? Where would I bring this, uh, these ideas and even if I had them implemented? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're always really keen to hear people's ideas. I think people might get sick of how often we ask for feedback through our website or Twitter, um, all kinds of different ways. So you can bring them to us for sure if you think you have ideas for how to make the tribunal better. We're all ears. If you have ideas about the justice system generally, I would encourage you to get in touch with the Dispute Resolution Office within the Ministry of Justice. It's a, a group of really forward-thinking people who are really focused on interesting, innovative solutions in the justice system. And I think one area where there's definitely room for more collaboration is between um, the incredibly bright minds we have in the tech sector in British Columbia and the public service. And I know that um, that hasn't always been an easy connection to make, but we've benefited so much from great ideas that have come from startups, really. Well, I think in a lot of ways, uh, both worlds can make each other's lives better and uh, for the greater uh, for the greater good as well. Absolutely. I think, I think almost every week or two for the last couple of months, um, we've been doing a demo with some new startup somewhere in Canada that has an interesting product or uh, application that we think can really improve our services. So sometimes that looks like a collaborative editing tool for parties to agree on an agreement. Um, sometimes it looks like just seeing what's being developed and implemented in other, other parts of the country, even if we can't use it directly. So part of the challenge, I think, with developing public sector technology is looking up every now and again, uh, doing an environmental scan, keeping yourself on the pulse of what's being developed, because otherwise you're, you're going to be obsolete before you get started. Well, if our listeners would like to dig a little bit deeper into that, uh, what would be a way to get uh, reach out to you or to the CRT? Well, then get in touch through our website. So civilresolutionbc.ca, there's a contact us button. It'll get uh, escalated to the right person if you leave us a message. And we'd love your feedback generally. Um, I know your listeners are extremely knowledgeable and savvy, so I'm expecting them to give us some really good advice and guidance about how how we can do things better. Very cool. I'll put some links below. Well, Shannon Salter, Chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal, thank you very much for being on the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Thanks for having me, Drew. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Check out our website, vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. Much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter, Van Tech Podcast. Feel free to leave some comments below. You can also hit us up on the YBR Dev, the Vancouver Tech, the Van Tech Slacks. I'm at James. And I'm at Drew. Special thanks to Same Room for hooking us up with an integration that allows us to have a cross-team Slack channel, Van Devs. Do you have a meetup that you want us to plug? Email us, show at vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Music by A Shell in the Pit from the game Parkitect. See you at one of the meetups around, around town. town.